want you to find somewhere near you, or there'll be three of you if that works out in the place where you're sitting. A couple of questions. Where will you be tomorrow at 10am and who will you be with? Second question. On Thursday night at 8pm, where will you be and who will you be with? Have a conversation with yourself and I'll get set up. Well, not with yourself, among yourselves. All right. How easy were those questions? We are reaching through the letter to the church at Ephesus. Before we get into that this morning, I just want to share something that happened to me. It was some years ago, as you probably would imagine, that part of what I do in life involves meeting with a lot of people. I sit down with people and we talk. So this is some years ago, I was meeting with a guy, a man, he was about my age. We were sitting in an office and we were having a conversation. Partway through the conversation, he says to me, would you mind taking your pants off? Now, what's your response to that and what was my response to that? The answer is all about the context. I was sitting in an office with my GP. Okay. You see, words always have a context, don't they? And when we fail to understand a context... See, some of you had your heart rate elevated, right? <laughs> when we fail to understand the context of words, we will misunderstand the conversation or the point of which I'm making. When we fail to understand the context of words, we even may find ourselves taking offence. Scripture always has a context, and it must be read with an understanding of the context in which it was written and spoken and heard the first time. To fail to do that will give rise to misunderstanding or even the taking of offence. Now that's true of all of Scripture, but there are some passages where context is even more important, and today's passage is one of them. If you don't understand the context, you will misunderstand it, and perhaps you will even take offence at it. And so this morning... As I unpack, as we go through this, this section from Ephesians, and this time we're, we're working through Ephesians 5 and 6, I want to speak about three contexts. And as I talk about the three contexts of this passage, you will understand the passage and understand what Paul was saying and understanding, as you're hearing it, what the first hearers, how they would have heard it. Well, that's my hope anyway. It's very easy for us to read and to understand things through our lens, through our culture. This is one of them where we actually need to step back 2,000 years ago and hear it through the lens of those who would have first heard it. So allow me to pray, because Father, we believe that your word is given to us by your Holy Spirit. It is inspired, it is true, and it speaks into our lives today. It is just as relevant and just as powerful as when it was spoken 2,000 years ago. So, Father, I pray that as we open your word, that your Holy Spirit would reveal to us the, the truths, the understandings, that you would seek us understand, but also be able to apply to our culture and to our context in a way that is appropriate, a way that is relevant, a way that is true to the original purpose of your word. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who both inspires and reveals it to us. 
Lord, may we read it, understand it, and listen to it for your glory. Amen. And so the first context that we have to, to look at is the whole letter of Ephesians. We've said this, I think, every week. If we haven't said it every week, we probably should have. Ephesians is a letter. It is an entire letter. It's not meant to be broken down. You know, who reads a letter in one go? You get something in the letterbox and you go, oh, I'll just read the first paragraph today. I'll put the rest aside for now. You don't do that, right? You read a letter as a letter. And so the letter to the church at Ephesus needs to be read as an entire letter. And there's a very, very consistent theme that comes through the letter to the church of Ephesus, and that is who you are in Christ, your identity in Jesus Christ. What God has done for you in Christ shapes who you are. You are a new creation. And then Paul goes on to talk about, therefore live this way. There is a way of living that is sourced in our identity. This is who you are. If you've got your Bibles, open them. There were two aspects of identity that Kathy spoke to us about last week. The first identity is that we are dearly loved children. And our response is to walk in the way of love. Ah, beautiful phrase, isn't it? You are dearly loved children, therefore walk in the way of love. The second identity piece that Cathy spoke about is that we are light. We are light in the Lord and therefore our response is to live as children of light for the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness and truth. So this really is the bigger context, the context of the whole letter. Our identity in Christ, who we are, lived out in response to that has consequences. And so that brings us up to where Cathy finished last week. Reading from Ephesians 5, verse 15 to 23. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. And so what we have is this passage, and we're going to go on and look beyond this passage as well, but I just wanted to leave it there at the moment. Because what I want to talk about now is actually not just the context of the whole letter, but the context of this section that we're looking at through to chapter 6, verse 9 today. Why it's so important in this passage to understand the context of the passage itself is because Paul writes with a very clear structure. And so coming out of the identity of dearly loved children and people who are light and walk in the way of love and live in light, Paul basically says, therefore, pursue these things, pursue these three things. These are not the only things that we should pursue, but Paul says, pursue these three things. The first is wisdom. We see this in verse 15. And it's a series of do nots and do's. So he says, you know, be careful, not as unwise, but as wise. So the first thing to pursue is wisdom. Second thing he talks about pursuing is understanding the Lord's will. In verse 17, therefore do not be foolish. So very similar to the first one, he says, but understand what the Lord's will is. And the other thing that he says to pursue is a life filled in the spirit. And again, it's the do not and the do. The do not is do not 
be drunk with wine. There's a sense in which if you drink too much, it will take control of you. It will affect your speech. It will affect your actions. You understand this, the effect of alcohol, either firsthand or looking at it somebody else. And he says, don't, don't allow yourself to be controlled by alcohol, but allow yourself to be controlled, filled with. And the, the Greek word here, filled, is not past tense. It's an ongoing tense. And so you could say, filled with or being filled with, continually being filled with, being filled up continually with the Holy Spirit. And so these are three things that Paul talks about pursuing. Given our identity as dearly loved children, given our identity of, as light, pursue these three things. Now the structure of Paul's passage where he goes from here is very interesting because the last one, the filling of the Spirit, is verse 18. And in your Bibles it doesn't have this. If you've got maybe a King James or an ESV, it splits the next five verses into three sentences. In the Greek it's actually one sentence. It's one continuous sentence through to verse 23. And so what follows is a description of the filling of the Spirit. Of the Spirit. And so he talks about being filled with the Spirit, this third thing to pursue. And he talks about, and the filling of the Spirit will express itself in a number of ways. Now, again, this is not an exclusive list. This is not the only way being filled with the Spirit expresses itself, but these are the three that Paul talks about. And the first one he talks about is actually the giving voice. And, and so verse 18, being filled with the Spirit, and then verse 19, he talks about speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. There's a sense in which, as a gathered community, we speak words of praise and worship and encouragement. You understand that, right? We don't just come to church to sing to God. There's a very real sense in which we come to church to sing to one another. The words in which we sing and speak out, and you feel this sometimes when our voices are lifted, you kind of go, wow, it gives tingles down the spine. There's a sense of this is a beautiful thing that we are speaking not only to the Lord and worshipping him, but we are speaking over each other. We are making declarations of who God is, what he has done, and we speak the words into each other's lives as we sing. And so there's this picture. Now this isn't set just in a church though. Let's not just limit this to church. Because this can happen in your house as well, right? Uh, there's only two of us in our house and a couple of cats, but they don't really understand normally what's going on. But, you know, Spotify comes on, the, the worship playlist happens, and whilst we're cooking dinner, there will be just words of worship actually throughout our house. It encourages us, it builds up our spirit, even as you cook dinner. It's not just the context of a church service that Paul is speaking here. He's talking about a life that is filled with the Spirit. And your life's not only filled with the Spirit when you're in church, you understand that. It's a life filled with the Spirit that speaks out over one another and declares the praises of God. So this first thing, this expression of being filled with the Spirit is giving voice to praise. The second one, I love the way that Paul expresses this. Uh, this is in verse 20, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. It's not just giving thanks. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. And so there's this sense of thankfulness. And it follows really beautifully, doesn't it, from the, the speaking out of praise and worship and encouragement. There's this giving thanks. What's the difference between giving thanks and worship? Often it's very hard to tell the difference. But that's, that's the point. A life filled with a spirit is one of gratitude. A life that is filled continuously with the Spirit is speaking out thankfulness to God. Thankfulness for everything. And then the third expression of being filled with the Spirit, and this is all one sentence, remember. Now, how many of you at the end of verse 20 ended up with a paragraph break in your Bibles? 
And a new heading as well? Okay, so you've probably got an ESV or an old NIV, is that correct? Or NLT, okay. So I'll come back to that, but they've put in a paragraph break and we're in the middle of a sentence. Okay, there's a reason why they've done that. It's because Paul writes ridiculously long sentences, right? But, But this is still the same thought of being filled with the Spirit. The third expression of being filled with the Spirit is submission to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that's verse 21. And the sentence keeps going after that as well. So this is not the end of a section. How many of you have a paragraph break at the end of verse 21? So you've probably got a new NIV or some other translation as well. Most do put a break in because it's a ridiculously long sentence. So the structure of this is very clear. Paul says, pursue three things and then let me tell you what the last of those, the third one, looks like, what it means to express the filling of the Spirit. Then, guess what he does with point C? The third of them, he then gives three illustrations. Okay, And so this is what it looks like as a structure. Three things to pursue of the third one, three things in the way it's expressed, and again out of the third one, mutual submission, he then applies it. He gives three illustrations from everyday life. Husbands and wives, parents and their children, masters and slaves. Why does he pick those three? Because they are the foundational relationships in the society 2,000 years ago. So the structure is really important. The reason why a structure is important is because what we have tended to do in, in terms of trying to translate it and to take Paul's ridiculously long sentences and make sense of them is we, we do put full stops in there. So NIV takes one sentence and turns it into six. NIV does try and be very readable and that's why they do it. It's not a bad thing to do. It's the same reason why they put in headings, paragraph headings. You know, you understand that paragraph headings were never in the scripture and never ever do a Bible reading when I'm present and read out the the heading. Seriously, it just makes me, yeah, no, don't do it. Don't read, that's not scripture. (laughs) Read out the scriptures. But the disadvantage in doing that is, is you can change the meaning of a passage. Now, how many times have you heard, verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as you do the Lord, started there? That that's the verse that comes out. I saw it on TV. Like You can use this verse as a weapon. Uh, a man can use it as a weapon against his wife if she's not giving him his beer at the end of the day or making a cup of tea for him when he wants it or whatever. He can say, wife, submit to me as you would to the Lord. Okay, so you can use it as a weapon. Uh, I've also heard non-Christians use it as a weapon as well. They come up to it and they say, this is what the Bible said, wives submit to your husbands. What do you say about that? And, and for most Christians, they kind of go, well, 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 yeah, it's true, it's true. What, what you should say is, well, hang on, that's the, that's the end of a sentence. Why don't you read the whole sentence, you idiot? Like that's, you know, <laughs> that's probably not a very Christian way to respond. But there is, <laughs> but there is a sense in which you can actually go, well, hang on, that's half a sentence. There's a real danger in actually starting a sentence halfway through. So I I just want to tell you this truth. These are Jesus' own words. Do not greet anyone on the road. You understand that? This is a direct command of Jesus. And so I'm actually thinking that we will start up a new denomination and the basis of the denomination will be Jesus' words in in Luke 10.4, that we will not greet anyone on the road, whether you are out walking in the evening, okay? Like I know some of you go out walking in the evening. Do not greet anyone on the road, 
okay? And that includes the footpath, so don't try and get all, all on the verge. Uh, if you see someone and you drive, don't wave them. If they let you in, don't give them a wave. Do not greet anyone on the road, okay? These are the direct words of Jesus. You understand that this is halfway through a sentence, and it's a sentence that has a context as well. Okay, so you can even go and just read one whole sentence and still out of context it will make no sense and your life will be miserable. Okay? It's not how we send our missionaries off. Imagine that if we say, say to our missionaries, oh no, don't take anything with you. Oh no, we're not going to give you any financial support. Jesus said if you're going to go out on mission, you go with nothing. You don't even take a, a pair of shoes. Okay? Good luck, off you go. Right? Um, it's dangerous to read at the beginning of halfway through a sentence. And when somebody says, wives submit to your husbands, and treats it as though it's a whole new point and a standalone point, what they're actually doing is they're making a point from the, from, well, not even, it's three quarters of a way through a very long sentence. So the importance of actually not beginning halfway through a sentence. So uh, this is all the one sentence. This is where it starts. So verse 18, from the filling of the Spirit, expressed in, uh, in those three points, giving voice to praise, always giving thanks for everything, and then submitting to one another, such as husbands and wives, all one sentence. And so when you understand, and this is what I'm talking about, understanding words in context. Because if you take the husband and wives, children and parents, masters and slaves out of context and actually created as a whole new point, it's very easy for you to believe that the point of this passage is that wives should submit to their husbands, children should obey their parents, and you are quite entitled to own slaves provided you treat them well. And I'm not sure that was Paul's point. In fact, I'm certain that was not Paul's point. And so what tends to happen, for those of you who are interested, this is actually the one Greek sentence translated into English. My Greek from college is well and truly gone. I don't know anybody, yeah, Chris and Ruth are nodding. It's like, I've got nothing left. Like, I, know the, I know the alphabet and that's probably about it. But there are books that actually just give you a literal translation. This is how it goes. And do not become drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled in the Spirit, speaking together in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in the hearts of you to the, to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father being submissive to one another in the fear of Christ, the wives to their own husbands as to the Lord, because a husband is head of the wife as also Christ, head of the church, himself saviour of the body. Full stop. And it goes on. And as I said, what we've tended to do is split either at verse 20 or sometimes even worse, down at verse 21, taking the context of wives submitting to their husbands out of the context of submission to one another. So that's even worse. All right, so I want to talk about the third context. We've talked about the context of the passage. Are you all following? Second context is the passage itself. The third context is the culture and the, the history around this. Really, really, really important because you understand that things change. Things have changed even in a generation, two generations. They're changing extraordinarily quickly. Uh, and so it's important to understand the context of the culture. So let's talk a little bit about the relationships that were there. Probably the easiest way to explain the culture is that the, the dominant person in the culture was the head of the household, was the man. And so the husband, the father and the master were generally the same person in a household and everything within that household, including the wife and the children and the slaves, was deemed to be owned. So if you want to understand the relationship between a husband and wife, 
All you need to do is step away from our understanding of a husband and wife, and this is peculiar in some sense to a Western culture, that a man and a woman would choose, would fall in love and choose to marry one another. That's still not the case in many countries. You understand that, don't you? Uh, that for some women today, and certainly for the majority of women back when this was written, they would have no choice as to who they would marry. It would be arranged by her father, and she would be given, as uh, probably in her teenage years, she would be given from the authority of her father to the authority of her husband. So the understanding is a woman was always owned by a man. This concept now is, you know, at a wedding, the father gives away his daughter. Now, that's a lovely sentiment these days, but it was actually a reality at one point in time, which is why a lot of women are refusing to be given away by their father, preferring to be given away instead by both their father and their mother. So this concept of husband and wife is very, very different from how we would understand husband. Well, I hope in your mind, I hope it's really different from how you understand husband and wife in that a husband would own his wife. It wasn't just cultural. So it was cultural within Jewish law, Jewish community. It was also cultural within Greek society. But it was also encoded in law. And again, when you read the Old Testament, it's very hard to understand out of context. Uh, So there are, and this is in Deuteronomy, that if, for example, there is an unmarried woman, so the daughter of a father, she's under the authority of her father, and the the unmarried girl is, is raped, then the penalty for the man who rapes the unmarried woman is that he pays her father 50 shekels of silver. Now, why does he pay her father, not the woman? Because the daughter is treated as the property of the father, and by raping his daughter, he has in some way diminished both the value of his daughter to the father, but also uh, offended the father. The other thing that was in the Jewish law is that if a man raped the unmarried woman, he had to marry her, and he, had, and he was not allowed to divorce her. Now, we might think that's more of a punishment to the girl he raped than to the man, but again, you've got to understand it culturally. It was meant to be a deterrent for men raping women without taking responsibility, and that would mean you needed to marry her and, in a sense, own her and take care of her. That's just an illustration, but you understand where I'm coming from, right? If we read this passage through our lens of the 21st century we will be offended by it or we will try and go, all right, well, we should go back to the days of or whatever. We need to understand it from 2,000 years ago. But when we think about it, it hasn't been that long ago since things have changed. So it's really only two generations, and certainly my mother was part of this generation, where the father would take their daughters out of school. So as soon as my mum legally didn't have to go to school and my mum was a very good student at school. She wanted to stay at school but her father said it's time for you to leave school and get a job appropriate for a woman and that was not an uncommon thing. What's the point in actually educating women? Because all they're going to do is work for a little while and then they're going to have children and that's their role in society and so that's not that long ago. My mum did go on and work and and it's actually not that long ago that we decided that we should pay men and women 
equal money for equal work. My mum stepped into her boss's role. She was a very good student. She was also a very good employee. So she worked for a very large firm, very responsible job. When her boss retired, they said, well, there's nobody better who can do this job than my mum. So they stepped my mum into the position and they continued to pay her around about half of what they paid the guy. My mum questioned that and she said, oh, no, no, no. And they said, well, we, we can't pay you what we would pay a man because that would upset the other women in the firm. So that's within my generation. Can you imagine 2,000 years ago the context in which Paul is speaking into? Now, when it comes to parents and children, it's much the same thing. Fathers had absolute... You may, if dads in here may be going, oh, I wish, right? Dads had absolutely authority, absolute authority over their children. That put women, uh, particularly young girls, if you had a number of children, you're not able to care. A lot of young baby girls were just abandoned, left on a rubbish tip somewhere else. But the father did have the authority to punish his child, to basically, uh, in a sense, almost enslave their child. Also, in some cases, there were certainly recorded cases, again, both in Jewish culture and also in the Greco-Roman culture, that a father could actually put their child to death without consequence because a child was seen as your property, not your offspring. It's a strange thing, right? Again, if you go to the Jewish law... In the Old Testament, you would come across a passage that says, if a father has a disobedient child, any fathers here have a disobedient child? (laughs) Only one of you. That's amazing. I'm really sorry. We're going to pray for you later. I'm glad that there's one honest father. Anyway, some of you were nodding very quietly. Anyway, but you've got to understand this is a long time ago when there were reasons culturally why it happened. But if a father had a disobedient child, they they could take the child. And if the child was disobedient and badly behaved as well, uh, they could take the child to the elders of the the city. And if the the son was found guilty of disobedience toward his parents, then he would be put to death. Weird, isn't it, right? But you've got to understand the culture of the day. Again, what was the offence? The offence was always against the father. And when we come to slavery... You've got to understand that slaves didn't do work. They did pretty well all the work. Often they were better educated, better trained than their masters, but they did all the work. They had no rights. Again, a master could do whatever they want. They could beat them, mistreat them, and even have them put to death. And that wasn't the ideal thing to do because they're a valuable asset, but that was the authority they had. Now, read this passage through this lens. Submit to one another... Out of reverence for Christ, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. The next verse, in verse 25, you would expect to read, Husbands, rule over your wives. What does Paul say? Husbands, love your wives. And then it gets worse. Just as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. If you're sitting in a synagogue or in a Christian gathering 2,000 years ago and you're a man and you hear these words, what are you thinking? If you are a woman sitting in there, what are you thinking? (laughs) Yeah. You see, can I say that this passage has always caused offence? It was scandalous. Absolutely scandalous what Paul taught. Do you know that Christians were accused of destroying the family unit? I love the irony of that, right? I love the irony of that. We were pulling apart the fabric of society, destroying the family unit. 
Oh, it's just beautiful. This is one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture when you understand its context and read it in its context. It is the most beautiful of passages. Present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. A profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your mother and father, the first commandment with a promise. So it will go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. And here it comes. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. You know, what Paul was asking of fathers was to actually engage in the life of their children. I love it. I love watching dads in this church engage with their kids. It's beautiful. Like, seriously beautiful. I love the way that fathers hold their kids, play with their kids, laugh with their kids. Because a lot of you would have had fathers who never did that with you, right? Because it wasn't the role of a father. The father was to be the breadwinner. Paul says these beautiful words, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favour when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And here it comes again. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And there is no favoritism in him. You can see how Christianity changed the world, right? It changed the place of women in the world. It changed our understanding of our children. And it changed our understanding of slavery. To our shame, it took us way too long to do that. We need to understand the scandalous nature of Paul's teaching. It's not just in here. You understand the Galatians passage. You've heard it many times. That there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Scandalous teaching about the way in which we see one another, the way in which we live out our faith in the everyday. Being filled in the Spirit is about giving voice It's about giving thanks, but it's also about living in such a way, living in a way of love that treats people in the same way that we desire to be treated. This mutual submission, it's a self-giving love that goes both ways. It's part of being filled with the Spirit of God. And what I love about this passage as well is that it's not set in a church Being filled with the Spirit, as I said, is not something that is just about being in church. It's the everyday. It's the way we do life in our families. I think sometimes doing faith together is hardest in our families. Why is it that in so many families to actually sit down and pray together, whether it's husband and wife or with your children, it just seems such it's too hard a thing to do. Get into a rhythm of actually bringing faith into your family into the household in which you live, if we're living with other people who are not family, bring faith into that context. 
Show and model to your children what it means to pray, what it means to, it means to worship. Whack on the music, the worship music, and do silly dances in the kitchen while you make dinner. But show a sense of joy and thankfulness. Teach your children what it means to be thankful. But you teach it by living it, right? You understand that. It's not about commanding your children what to do. It's about living it out in front of them. And it's not just a family thing with children. This is about whatever household we find ourselves in. This is about the workplace where we are part of, the people we work with, the people we work for, or the people who work for us. How do we live out this spirit-filled life, a life of, of giving voice, giving thanks, and mutual submission in every context of life in the everyday? How do we live this out? See, when we understand what Paul is saying, we understand the implications of this passage for us. Paul is asking us to live a life of love in every part of our lives. Not to segregate it to church, not to segregate it to our small group, not even to segregate it to our our Christian friends, but to actually live out a spirit-filled life in every context of life, including the hard ones, and sometimes that is family. Sometimes the hardest place to be a Christian is in our family. Sometimes the hardest place to be a Christian is in our schools. Sometimes the hardest place to be a Christian is in our workplaces. Wherever it is, Paul is saying live in this way. And the reality is you will live counterculturally because back then and now, selfishness, a self-centeredness, a doing what is good for me is the dominant way of seeing life, self-fulfillment. Paul says I want you to live differently. I want you to live looking at other people first. I want you to find someone to pray with, just twos or threes, and go back to that question. Where will you be and who will you be with at 10am tomorrow? Where will you be and who will you be with at 8pm on Thursday? Would you pray for one another now that you would live out your identity as dearly loved children of light in those places? Uh, Just allow me to pray. Father, again, I just want to say thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you for what it challenges us with, for the way in which it challenges us to, to live not in the ways that our culture calls us to, but to actually live in ways that bring glory to you. Father, may we indeed be people who pursue wisdom, pursue the will of the Lord. May we indeed be people who pursue a life that is filled with the Spirit, that expresses itself expresses itself in praise and thanks and a mutual submission to one another, a mutual giving of ourselves in love to one another for your glory. Amen.